Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And before we get to an excellent podcast with Nelson Chu of Cadence, a quick shout out to our friends at Rippling. Rippling makes payroll, benefits, and also integrating into your IT stack super easy. We love them for payroll. We love them for benefits. They make working with an independent insurance broker so much easier, which then saves you a bunch of money, which is awesome. And then I don't know how you guys manage ID or identity, well, Nelson, but Rippling allows you to spin up people and it's kind of like Octolite and gives them uh, IDs that then loop into all your favorite web services so you don't spend a bunch of time setting that up manually. So it's a really nice service. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So it's an awesome service. We love it. Um, and with that, that was Nelson chiming in there. Welcome, Nelson Chu of Cadence. Uh, thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. Yeah. We are just kind of getting to know each other. But what you guys are doing is awesome, and I was totally nerding out because I have a background in debt too. Cadence is unbelievable. Can you tell everyone how you had the idea for Cadence and, and maybe retrace your career a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, I would say that my career, uh, everything I've done in my past has led me to this point, basically. So I was like almost tailor-made to be doing this type of company. Um, so I uh, have a traditional career in finance, albeit a very short period of my life. Um, I was that. Merrill Lynch for the last two months of Merrill Lynch's life. That was my first job. So that's a fantastic <laughs> way to start. Uh, and then uh, became, no correlation, no, no correlation no. between you and them. Yeah. Uh, and then it became Bank America, obviously. And so I stayed there for about a year and a half. And then everyone was nudging me towards the buy side. They were like, buy side's better. You should go out, leave the sell side. Not worth it. And so jumped over to the, at the time, biggest buy side shop on the street. Now definitely the biggest buy side shop on the street in BlackRock. Um, so I was in the fixed income portfolio management group. And then after a year there, I was like, you know what? I can do so much better than this. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to jump ship and do my own startup, and it's going to be fantastic. This was like 2012, 2013. Uh, so I left BlackRock uh, with some money saved up, and then uh, my parents decided to chip in something to get me off the ground. Uh, I proceeded to burn through all that cash very quickly. Uh, and so no idea what I'm doing, no idea how to actually build a company. Um, but you know, over the course of trying to do a few haphazard startups, um, picked up design skills, picked up development skills, picked up, um, you know, management skills, sales skills, et cetera, as a single person founder with a call it, you know, lackadaisical two or three person team kind of got to do everything. And so, um, burned through all my cash, uh, was broke. And so when you're broke, you become a consultant, uh, cause that is the easiest way to kind of get some cash in the door. And so yeah. leverage my FinTech or finance background at the time, uh, leverage my design skills and whatnot to build out a strategy consulting firm that ended up being my startup, if you will. Uh, so at our peak, awesome. yeah, we had about 15 people. Uh, we helped founders with very early stage companies, uh, get off the ground and get going. We had a very specific criteria around it. And so the goal was you had to have been a founder that had exited a company before. And you also had to have an idea that we would personally be interested in investing in. And so if you hit those, that narrows the list down from like 100 different companies, like two, basically. And so uh, it did really well. Uh, we had a couple of good exits um, in terms of just us investing personally in the companies and then exiting our positions. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was thinking if I'm giving all these founders advice as to what to do um, and they're raising money, I should probably just do it myself. And so for the right idea at the right time, uh, I assumed that, you know, I would take the plunge and do it the old fashioned venture backed way. 
And so that's really how Cadence came to be. Uh, we started in May of 2018. That's kind of when the ideas first came, came to fruition. And we saw a real big gap in the market when it came to private credit. And so this is through your background. You've been there. People are searching for yields. And so that leads us down this path of creating opportunities for everybody as best we can. And then, you know, there's a much deeper rabbit hole we can go into about the company as to what you see on the website, not what we actually do. So, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, it is just going back to your previous experience. It is so hard starting a company. So I'm impressed that you took the second, the, like, I understand people taking the first leap and it not working out, but the fact that you stuck with it and did another company is really amazing. And kudos to you for getting the strategy consulting firm off the ground and, and making that a profitable exit. That's, that's really amazing. Yeah, stumbling forward, I think is the best way to put it. But yes. Yeah, I definitely stumbled forward a lot in my career too. I mean, crew started the same way as you started your company. So, and then that private, like making private credit accessible to investors is such a huge idea. And I have that background in debt that we talked about. So what made you like, how did you see this opportunity for making private credit accessible? Yeah, so we actually had some clients that were in the private credit space on the consulting side. So we were, we had a firsthand look at all of this. And so when you're looking at, you know, factor receivables, which effectively means that you have a Costco or a Target or an Apple or a Google um, willing to pay a company for services, and then they pay 45 days later, and you can kind of make a spread off that, that becomes very interesting, right? So these are deals that normally are reserved for hedge funds, credit funds, pension funds, et cetera. And so if you had the opportunity to give, you know, regular accredited investors the way to diversify their own portfolio, it's fantastic. And so we saw that opportunity there. And then as we dug deeper and deeper into private credit, we realized how broken the entire market actually is. And so that's when we start to enhance and build out the other parts of our business that are a lot more institutional than what you see on the website. So you started off with like accredited investors, like I'm barely a credit investor. And then, and then you started, you're kind of going up into more institutional focus. Yeah. More institutional focus on both the buy side uh, and the actual issuance side. And so uh, our actual vision for the company is to help out a private credit lender in every single stage of their growth using data, using um, software solutions, whatever it is to be able to kind of support that. Right. And so on the retail platform, as you see it today, uh, we have, you know, small up and coming tech enabled private credit lenders doing small business lending, doing consumer loans, you know, in US, Mexico, Colombia, et cetera. And so that's all well and good. Um, they have a five, $10 million portfolio of loans. As they get bigger and bigger, they need to get to that next level. And so retail investors help them grow at that phase until they reach that next level. And the next level is when they need real institutional capital, 40, 50, 60 million bucks. And so that's when we bring them to the security side of our business and help them close on those bigger ticket deals with the institutional investors that we have access to using software, using technology to be able to do that and leveraging the data that we've collected over the years to be able to actually help them sell that story. And so we actually did um, a $40 million public company whole business securitization in March. That was our first foray into the market, which was the first institutional deal that we've ever done. Wow, that's awesome. So, and maybe, maybe I'm, I could be a little outdated, but back in the day when I was at Lighthouse, we would do a debt deal. We were debt, mm -hmm. follow the VC equity, and then eventually they would kind of outgrow us because we were expensive sure. and couldn't get above kind of $20 million in debt. And so then they would start doing, and maybe is this what you're doing or, or even one step further, they would start doing like SPV financings where they would put the loans that they made into another entity and then someone 
like you or the people you're representing would advance maybe 80% of that loan book. Is that how you're growing? Yeah, you could pull it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So you can pull it that way. You can also do like term securitizations, which is just pretty standard. You can also find them credit facilities. There's lots of different ways to play in that space. Uh, When it comes to, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars of exposure, I don't want that with retail investors. And that becomes very risky just from a pure reputational yeah. standpoint. Uh, yeah. But when you get to that level, you can build in the bells and whistles that you'd expect from an institutional rated deal, effectively. A ratings agency can come in and actually provide their their stamp of approval yeah. on it. Uh, and that's when you feel a lot more comfortable. And we don't take on financial risk in that instance. We take on minimal reputational risk from, you know, we structure the deal. If it goes south, we just problem with our structure. Uh, but it, it's much more de-risked relative to the retail platform where you have hundreds of investors in any given deal. Yeah. So the securitization makes sense. And maybe for the audience, and I only know this through, inve- I invested in SoFi, not super early, but like sure. decent, you know, decent timing. And SoFi was one, of, this is probably 10 years ago, was actually pioneering these securitizations yeah. as startups. And so maybe you can walk the audience, like what what is a securitization? Sure. And who buys them and what protections are built into securitization yeah. for the investors? Absolutely. Yeah. So securitization at, at its most simplest level is uh, you have a single loan to a consumer, for example, right? And it's super risky to give and extend capital to that one consumer because if it goes south, then you're done for, right? So the goal is to package all these consumer loans together into a product that becomes investable uh, at a size that you can really kind of deploy at scale. And so when it becomes securitized in that instance and packaged and collateralized and all that, uh, then you have the ability to even potentially trade it because it becomes a liquid, semi-liquid opportunity that has the ability to, you know, price it based on the performance of the loans in all those whole portfolios. And so that's effectively what securitization is at its high level. For us in particular, uh, we are creating micro securitizations, which I think we are a pioneer in that instance. And so our smallest ever note that we issued was $100,000 for one month. And so, yeah, exactly. So in that instance, um, you know, we've created what are called short-term note programs for all of our lenders. And so they have one month, three months, six months notes that investors can invest in. It rolls over every single time it matures. And so in good times, pre-COVID, you have the ability to basically reprice it every single time so that the cost of capital for the lender comes down, right? Every single month that they deliver, you deserve to get a benefit for that. Uh, In post-COVID, in this kind of new world that we live in today, that actually helps the investor. And so in this instance, we have the ability to reprice it as a result of these notes coming due in March and April and May. And we spiked up the yield dramatically to account for this new world risk. But we've seen several of our originators do very well. So we have, you know, factored receivables, like I mentioned earlier, with Apple and Google. They're not going to not pay in 45 days, right? And so what was originally 8% jumped to 11 12% is now back to 10%. And so we're seeing this kind of dynamic market shape itself as a result of this new world that we live in today. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of our way of playing the securitizations before we do the more traditional stuff like you talked about earlier. Yeah, that's amazing, though. And the other thing, like for folks that it's securitization is really good for the lender and effectively the borrower, too, because by pooling all these loans, you get real diversification, which then brings the interest cost down. Like the, the, the people who buy these securitizations, investors are effectively lending money and they're saying, like, you know, what? since you have a big pool, I'm going to I know I won't be hit just with one bad loan. And so therefore I can take a lower interest rate. And then I, I love how you talked about how some of the borrowers were able to improve their interest rates and drive them down over time. 
because they were showing good performance. Yeah. Because like this really nice positive cycle where lenders who make good loans and can do a lot of volume can really drive their interest rate costs down. Absolutely. We're actually turning the model on its head too. Um, so in one of our lenders is a uh, small, target small businesses in called middle America, right? So yeah. as part of the COVID crisis, um, that book gets hit pretty hard, just in general, right? You'd yeah. expect it to. So at a portfolio level, you'll see declines and deterioration in performance from the loans. But through our data and through our technology, we have the ability to see how every single underlying asset is performing on a daily basis, right? So we can actually monitor it. And so this is a little bit counterintuitive, but in a crisis situation as a lender, if I'm a, a credit fund, right? In bad times, I basically cut the credit and say, you can't lend anymore and I need my money back. Give me $3 million starting next week, right? Yeah, um, that yeah. will literally destroy most lenders. They don't have cash on hand to be able to do that and they have to unwind their positions. You effectively push them towards default. In our yeah. instance, because we have visibility into data on a regular basis, the thesis goes, if I give you more capital and you underwrite as part of this new COVID environment, your performance for that should begin to offset your deteriorating portfolio. And the more money I give you, the better you'll do and the better our investors are as a result of it. And so we've seen the performance stabilize in this lender and their actual ability to collect has increased off these guys, off their borrowers by just giving them the ability to extend this. And so the transparency helps also the investors. They get comfortable with the product. And so you'd expect a lot of our investors to run away from this type of originator in this environment. And because they see the reports on a daily basis, we make it available to all the investors. They see the reporting, they see it stabilized. We actually upsized the amount that we were expecting to give this originator in the most recent note simply because people got comfortable with it. So it, we're changing the dynamic of how credit is extended and how investors have access to it across the board at every level. It makes so much sense. Basically, your technology gives like the real-time view, if I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Yep. And because you have a real-time view, you actually know if they're doing well enough or not. And you probably, do you have something that shows you kind of the inbound requests? Because that's really what you're funding with the extra money, right? It's, how do you... How do you know that the inbounds are good? Or is it just, hey, it's hitting the underwriting thresholds? Yeah, so we underwrite the underwriter in this instance, right? So our job is to assess the creditworthiness of the actual originators themselves. And so we don't ever look at a specific loan within their, you know, 3,000 loan portfolio, right? We're expecting that we can track the performance of it and we can monitor it over time. Um, Then as long as the underwriting standards are sound, uh, then we're in good shape. What we do to what we talked about earlier around sort of protections that are in securitizations have various different things in place for the retail investors and also for our bigger ticket deals. So there's things like a first loss coverage, for example, right? So essentially the originator is on the hook for X percentage of default in this instance and of the principal and interest that is, that's expected to be payback. So is because our notes are so short, we were able to restructure the first loss as a result of COVID to increase it based on the new risk that we're taking. At the institutional level, there's a whole lot of more bells and whistles you can do as part of getting a rating, um, putting what's in place what's called a lockbox, where effectively the money that is designed to be given back to the investor is in an account that they can't touch and that we can't touch until the time is right and everyone agrees we can touch it again. And so it gets siphoned out. So that is things that, again, if you add those in, you drop the yield, right? So retail expects in this environment, probably like 12 to 19% in terms of yield. Um, just based on what we've been seeing. For an institution, they expect way less than that. And so they will get the protections they want as a result of it. So it kind of goes hand in hand. That's really good. It's really cool that you can customize, you know, you're basically playing a matchmaking game and you're like, okay, if you want, a, you'll trade off a lower yield, 
for more protection, we can do that for you, yep. which is which is super exciting. The first loss thing is what I was really uh, that's that's really powerful, and I, I I actually love covenants like that that align the borrower and the lender because like without the first loss protection, the lender, the small business lender, would just be out there doing every deal that came through, yeah, right? Exactly. Like yeah. That. But because they know they're holding the bag and eventually will have to pay the first big chunk of losses, they're a lot more selective and a lot smarter. Absolutely. The type yeah. of yeah. And with That's this really new funny. age of like fintech technology, like I have visibility into their bank account, right? So you need to make yeah. sure that yeah. first loss covers actually in your bank account at that point in time. Yeah. And so we have the ability to do that, which makes it a lot easier. So it's using technology the way it was meant to be used in a traditional financial services space that has not innovated in decades. Yeah, amazing. And then are the lenders that you're underwriting, are you working with people? I'm assuming it's like kind of the most advanced technological lenders as well. Like they're probably getting QuickBook feeds and bank feeds from absolutely. their borrowers. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So they, we try to only bring on board, call it the next generation cabbage, you know, um, of the cabbage yeah. blue vines of the world, right? So very tech enabled, very data driven. And so that's the reason why in, when COVID happened, we had confidence they could be able to weather this because they can change their underwriting standards on a dime and have all the visibility into the ability for these guys to be able to pay. That's so cool. How do you determine, like, what's the, what's, what are the, um, the questions you ask potential uh, originators or lenders on your platform? Like, uh, tech enabled obviously is one thing. Are there certain sectors you look at? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so we have um, a legal framework that lets us do securitizations in about two hours. And so that in of itself helps a lot, uh, but it's based on various different asset classes that we already have, right? So we can do factored receivables, we can do small business lending, we can do consumer lending, um, but we don't, right for the, for the moment at least, want to go too far out of those Kind of buckets because it, it ends up adding up in legal fees, right? So we kind of have that framework in place. Beyond that, we have a full-blown um, underwriting policies and procedures that we have to go through for each of these originators to bring them on board. So the first go at it is usually about four to six weeks before one of these programs can get up and running. So it's a lot of work. And we always start small. So we need to get comfortable with them. We need to see how the data is performing. If it's coming in the way they originally gave it to us as, then we're in good shape. If it's not, then we are not putting anybody's money really at risk because of the size, it's really not that big a deal. But the most important thing for all of this is that they need to have bigger aspirations. And so we cannot just be extending capital to a mom and pop shop, if you will, right? Yeah, because, and that's because yeah. you want them to get big enough to create another enough volume for it to be a profitable client for you, Correct, right? yeah. So we look at lifetime value of originator in the millions, right? Because there is the goal of bringing them from retail to institutional to ultimately our software our, our SaaS platform, right? So our SaaS platform is where we take a step back as a structuring agent in this instance. We kind of hand over the keys to anybody who wants to do what we do. And so in that instance, um, the total lifetime value is tremendous. So I'm not going to penny pinch them at the outset, but I also need to know that they want to get to that level. Um, and generally, honestly, these are like these are hundreds of thousands of VC-backed companies. So they all are incentivized to get to that level. So it's really not too bad. <laughs> That's awesome. That's really incredible. Is there another category? Like you talked about the factoring and small business lending. Is there something that you see on the horizon that you're going to go after? Yeah. So we, we actually have it right now, uh, but it's, it's called asset seasoning. And so that is, this is like one of my favorite ones. Oh, um, never heard of that. Yeah. So we do it for um, power sports financing. Uh, we also are looking at it for solar financing, uh, but basically you have this period where 
the person on the other side, usually a bank or some sort of a facility, is not recognizing it as a real asset because it's not at a certain stage, right? So for solar, for example, you're, there needs to be enough panels on the roof for it to qualify as an actual asset, and that's when they can take it over. And so it's effectively a 100% takeover rate as long as it's a real asset. And so we can finance these, call it 30, 60, 90-day periods, where there's very low risk because as long as it reaches a certain point, someone's going to be there to buy it out. And we take on that initial period, uh, and investors can get access to that in a very short-duration basis. And so we like yeah. that asset very, very much, and we're looking to add more to that in our portfolio. Yeah, and solar continues to grow so fast, so that's really amazing. Now, I, I didn't, and I apologize, but what's your investor base like? Are you VC-backed as well? We are, yeah. So we raised a pre-seed round in uh, January last year, uh, and then we raised a um, seed round in January of this year. Uh, and then we kind of shored up our balance sheets a little bit uh, as a result of COVID uh, recently, and so we took on a little bit more capital as well. So we're well positioned to be able to weather this storm and anything that may come our way. And so we're, we feel very fortunate. Uh, but all of our investors are generally institutional. So that kind of tells you where our, um, our head is at and where we're, we're looking to aspire to be. Um, but we have investment, have taken investment from Argo, the public insurance company. We've taken investment from Dick Parsons, former chairman of the city, his family office. Yeah. We've taken investment from another hedge fund, uh, major hedge fund and their family office. Uh, we have a board that consists of the former president of E-Trade, the former co-CEO of a $20 billion structured credit fund, in addition to the other board members who are the leads from the prior rounds. And so we're very, very institutionally minded. Um, and that's where we need to get to. But retail is a very important step for us to be able to kind of reach that point. Oh, I love it. That's And you made a point about shoring up your balance sheet right now. It's such a great observation because... This, and especially the lenders you work with, this is like the moment for the next couple of years, this will be a great time to be doing business for them and for yeah. you. And so that's really smart to to add some more capital and make sure you're well positioned. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we were very fortunate that uh, we were oversubscribed for the seed round. And so we had the ability to tap into it. So we actually raised at a premium for this uh, safe note relative to our round that we closed in January. Um, granted, we are now a different company having closed that $40 million uh, whole business securization for the public company. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, was convincing for a lot of these people. Well, that probably does. That I mean, that is probably a really nice profit hit for you, too, because I know that so far, like the, the interesting thing about securitizations is it kind of accelerates the profit. Like a normal bond portfolio, you would you would kind of if you just kind of visualize cash flows and a certain percentage, that would be profits every year or every month down the line. So doing the securization actually is like kind of a nice one-time hit for you, I assume. Absolutely, yeah. And you know that's the, the beauty of capital markets in general, which I think a lot of VCs don't have a good handle on just because it's not their forte, uh, is that the numbers are so large that basis points mean a lot at that, in that instance. Yeah. Right? So their revenues yeah. are substantial. Um, and so in this instance, having done that $40 million deal, we are now the number one, number 21 largest U.S. structuring agent for ABS in the United States. And so we are, so awesome. we are three below Guggenheim. Um, so you can tell where we're gunning for. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it's fantastic of an opportunity here that we've presented for ourselves. And we use the retail platform as a great funnel to get these originators to that level. Yeah. Nelson, this is super cool. Well, I love this. I, you know, I, I actually think now I need to put some money on your platform too, because this is, I know you're not going after retail, but I'm, I'm a retail investor. Uh, it's super exciting. Well, maybe you can tell everyone where they can find Cadence, how to reach out to you, 
and, and what you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage anyone who is accredited, uh, that's legally I have to say that, to yeah. you know take a look at our platform, sign up for it, take it, just poke around. Uh, I, I would like to think that we are the only platform out there that allows for a short duration, high yield investments, right? And the minimum is $500. And so we allow people to kind of try before they buy, if you will. Uh, we've seen plenty of investors put in $500 for a month, comes back with $4 of interest, and then they withdraw it, see if it works, and then they put in $10,000, $15,000, $20,000. Yeah, so that's, yeah. we've seen that happen. So you can come check it out. It's withcadence.io. That's where you can just log in, sign up, and see all of our deals. If you have any questions for me personally, I'm always happy to answer them. And so you can reach me at nelson at withcadence.io. Otherwise, our, our support team would be happy to hear from you. And they're just at hello at withcadence.io. So um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity. Retail is core to what we do um, because it's the only way we can get to that next level. And it's, it will continue to kind of support the other parts of our business. Yeah, I, know, I actually know some institutional investors who listen to this too. So you're you're hitting both the retail market and the institutional market. So this is really cool. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And I, I really like what you're doing. Like my all the all the positive alarm bells are going off in my head that this is like the real deal. So congrats on starting it. And congrats on having the perseverance to do an, another company after the first one didn't work. That's that's really the moment where you determine if you're an entrepreneur or not. And I have a lot of respect for you. I could do this all over again every single time. So it's, you know, we're, we're, we're in a good place. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was fantastic to be here. Awesome. All right, Nelson, take care. Take care. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. Founders and friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty Scotty Orr.